everyone. You're listening to The Katie Halper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Halper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper show. So blessed to be with all of you. So excited to be here. We will be talking to a mother-daughter team, podcasters. They will be talking to us about a really cool podcast that they co-host called I Was Never There, which is about a woman who goes missing. Karen and Jamie Zellemeyer, who are the mother-daughter podcasting duo, they go and try to figure out what happened to this woman, their family friend who went missing. And then after that, I speak to Ali Abunima, the journalist from the Electronic Intifada, And we talk about uh, Israel, Palestine, and also a really interesting article that he wrote, which was a kind of takedown of a New York Times article that basically tries to blame Islamophobia on, guess who? The Russians, on Russia, Russia, Russia. So we'll be talking to Ali later in the show. But before we speak to Karen and Jamie about their podcast called I Was Never There, I want to invite everyone to not stop what you're doing, continue what you're doing hit the like button, just give it a like, and also subscribe if you don't already subscribe. And to do that, you just hit subscribe and then the bell. Also, you can become YouTube members and that gives you access to really cool badges and emojis. And if you want to become Patreon supporters, that's always great. It helps make the show happen. That's at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And wow, guys, we posted the amazing interview that we did with Roger Waters, where he talks about everything from his father's death to psychoanalysis to having a therapist who has a drinking problem to thinking he killed his father to Israel-Palestine to COVID. It's a real, what's the word? Not topsy-turvy. Freewheeling, freewheeling, a freewheeling chat. And it's really great. And you can get that on audio or video. And it's they're both on Patreon right now. Actually, I'm not sure if the audio is on Patreon yet. It is. They're both on Patreon right now. So Jamie and Karen Zellermeyer are mother-daughter collaborators. Jamie is a producer, studio executive, New York women in film and television president and parent activist. Karen is an artist, writer, and professional lesbian who worked on LGBTQ issues for decades. And they are talking about their award-winning podcast, I Was Never There, which looks at what happened to their friend Marsha Mud Ferber, a rock club owner and low-level drug dealer who went out for an errand in 1988 and never came back. So, Jamie and Karen, welcome. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Of course, yeah. So this is a great podcast. I really enjoyed it. I binged on it. I binged listened to it. And we have a trailer. Should we play the trailer so people get a sense of what this podcast is about? In 1985, Marsha Mud Ferber took the stage at the Underground Railroad, a bar she owned in Morgantown, West Virginia, to hold an election. Let's hear it from Ronald Reagan. And now, given the choice, would you vote for Harriet Tubman? Yeah! All right. Harriet Tubman is president of 123 Pleasant Street, Morgantown, West Virginia. 
Marsha was a political radical and a hippie with a flair for the dramatic. The first time I saw Marsha, she was walking down High Street singing at the top of her lungs, let's get drunk and screw. Everywhere Marsha went, she built community. And she was all about redistribution of wealth. She'd share her panties. She raised the consciousness of West Virginia. And then, one day in April 1988, she disappeared. Marsha was last seen April 25th. All that was missing was her backpack. Her car was left at a parking meter. Belongings left in an apartment above the bar. I'm Jamie Zellermeyer. I was raised communally by a bunch of hippies who had a lot of fun and did a lot of drugs. That's how I knew Marsha. Growing up, she was like a second mom to me. And I'm Karen Zellermeyer, Jamie's back-to-the-land hippie mom. Marsha was one of my best friends. We've decided to go back in time, talking to people from her past and ours, to try and figure out what happened. But the more we spoke to people, the more I realized there was a lot of shit going on that I knew nothing about. She was possibly murdered by some drug dealer types. The pot business funded everything. We were in South America, Marsha and I. We were in trouble. This podcast is about Marsha Ferber. But it's also about us. So I've said this about a million times, but what the fuck were you thinking? I wasn't, but would I do anything differently? (laughs) I'm almost embarrassed to say probably not. This is I Was Never There. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So really enjoyable podcast, a kind of cool mix of true crime and also mother-daughter discussions and family issues come up. But what made you guys do this in the first place? Well, I work in film and television, so I am a, a storyteller, and I had always wanted to tell the story of the time and the place, which was West Virginia in the 1970s. And I just always loved the story of the Back to the Land movement and sort of what my parents experienced at that time and the hope that they had in the 1970s. But to tell a story, you know, you need you need hooks and you need good stories. And Marsha was such an important part of my upbringing and of my childhood. So I just felt like it was a good way, doing the podcast was a really good way to tell both parts of those stories because she was also a back to the land hippie and they just really worked together. And I always knew it was my mom's story to tell. I was kind of there to help her tell it and to tell my part of it, but it always felt very organic that we would both tell it together. And here, I'm just showing some photos. Here's you and your mom. That's in West Virginia. We, my parents moved back to the land when I was 10 days old to um, Braxton County, West Virginia. And you're nine months old in that picture. And my mom was 24 when she had me, which is, you know, back in the 70s. That's, maybe that's when people had kids. But my mom was pretty young when she took this big leap of faith and, and moved to West Virginia to the middle of nowhere with a 10-day-old baby. And so, Karen, what made you want to tell the story? Well, I've always shared Jamie's interest in really talking about the Back to the Land movement and a a time when, when, like, we had hope. I mean, we really thought we could change the world. And I'm not sure that that's how people feel these days. So trying to put that out and inspire risk-taking for me was a big part of it. And then uh, the other big part of it was really being able to do something with my kid. And what is the back to the land movement? Because that was something that was cool about this. It has like a bit of a mystery, but then it also explores different movements and just a cool historic lens. 
You know, it's funny. I'm actually going to let Jamie explain that. But what's funny is we were guest speakers in a, uh, a class at Hunter College about podcasting. And we started with talking about hippies in the Back to the Land movement. And these young kids didn't know what a hippie was, didn't know what the Back to the Land movement was. It was like, so for me, that was like, oh, wow, holy shit. We really got to build a different foundation here to, to, to talk about this. So what, what was the Back to the Land movement, Jane? The Back to the Land movement was a, a time when I think people felt dissatisfied or it was a, it was a way of life of, of, of a feeling of dissatisfaction of a way of a feeling of like of the cities just were very much based on money and greed and capitalism. And it's funny, some of the issues are the same. It's about the environmental movement, the green movement, capitalism. And so it was people who decided that they wanted to move out of cities, move more rural and live off the land, grow grow their own food, in some cases have their own animals. I'd say in the 70s, it was a little more, some of it was probably more organized. You know, some places were more organized than others in terms of communes or not communes and and how, you know, where, was your money collected collectively? How did you make money? How did, what kind of jobs did you have? But I think it was really a, an ethos or a, a sort of a, a feeling of the cities were not working and there was too much greed and we needed to live a different way that was more sustainable. Yeah, you know, I was in college and grew up, my my younger activism years was with the formation of, of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, right? And at a certain point, there was a real split in that movement. And there was a whole arm of that movement that was really making the decision to take up arms, right? The weathermen and to me, that was crazy. And to a whole segment of our population, there was, a, there was no way you would ever convince me that the, the public was really just ready for some vanguard to take the lead and everybody would pick up arms, right? It was just, they were out of their fucking minds, quite frankly. And maybe we were a little bit too in thinking that another alternative to that was really saying we reject it, but we've got to present something positive. And so this idea of going back to the land, I think in the podcast, we talk about tearing systems down to the studs and rebuilding. And that's what we thought we were doing. And one of the problems was that there was this back to the land movement. Unfortunately, there were some of us who came to it with that ideology, but there were other people who came to it because they liked to smoke weed and get high, which we like to do too. But there was a political ideology underneath what we were doing. And for some, there just wasn't. And that lack of a common ideology, I think, was a, ultimately a fatal flaw. So tell us about Marsha and tell us about how you met her and anything else that you want to let people know. I mean, it's just, it's another thing I just have to say, it's so fascinating that this was such an incredibly successful podcast. Like, I don't mean this as an insult, but if you had told me about this podcast idea, I would have been like, oh, that's interesting. I want to listen to it. But I never would have guessed it would have been like the top 20 podcasts. Well, that takes a lot of work. Takes yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> and it's really well done. But obviously, you can have a well done podcast. But if there's not a there there, you know, it's just interesting that this resonates with so many people. And most people didn't do Back to the Land. They wouldn't even consider themselves interested in that. So there's something. Tell us about Marsha's character, because that must be part of it. That is a piece of it. But the other piece of it that really seemed to resonate with people, and then I'll go back to Marsha, was about the mother daughter dynamic. 
Right. And that whole, that whole processing, you know, all those times when Jamie would look at me like, what the hell were you thinking? That was one of the funniest parts. Like I was laughing out loud when Jamie was like, wait, you did what? <laughs> and even I, there's one part, I didn't want to give it away, but I think I'll just hint at it. But you almost get major legal trouble because of drugs. And then you have a lawyer who helps you out and then you owe him money. So what do you, to pay him back, you? I do more drugs. I carry drugs onto an airplane, like a lot of drugs. She sends them through the security conveyor belt in her backpack. Five pounds in a backpack in an airport. Really strong smelling. Not now, though. Not in 2022 when cannabis is legalized. This is, you know, 1980, 81, 82, like thereabouts, 82. Not the same time period. This was from Florida to, this was a very good friend of my mom's, was a, very, was a big Jamaican pot dealer. So she went down and helped him out and traveled back. It was from Florida. They lived in Miami and it was from Florida to New York. Well, it was, yeah, it was Jacksonville, actually. We were oh. in Jacksonville, but. There you go. <laughs> so Marsha, Marsha was my, um, I, I, you know, my soul. So we actually, we went down to West Virginia in 1973 from New Jersey. She and her crew went down in 1975, so a couple of years after us. And in those days, we had no idea that there were any other groups like us anywhere other than the people who lived in our vicinity and in the vicinity where they were, which was really just like one county over. There were a whole number of little communes. And at, at a certain point, it became, the Marsha was, she wasn't just a, a revolution, she was a visionary. And she was someone who had great ideas about everything, how to make money, how to whatever, you know. And so they came up with this idea of starting a food co-op, but not just a food co-op. They had started a food co-op in their little county, but they started a federation of, of food co-ops called the Federation of Ohio River Cooperatives. And so... I met them in Columbus, Ohio, at a meeting of all these co-ops. And I became one of the facilitators of this big gathering. But Marsha, she agreed to be the president of this federation as long as it came with no power or responsibility. But she just was always brimming with ideas and not afraid of anything. And I loved that and felt a real kinship to that. And with that, so. And then we eventually moved into, she owned a communal house in Morgantown, West Virginia, which is where she ended up. And we, my mom, my sister and I, my dad at another time, and I lived in the earth. It was called the earth house. And it was kind of a suburban house, but with many rooms. And it was a shared kitchen. And Marsha was the owner of this house. She eventually moved into the buildings where her bars were, the Underground Railroad and the Dry House. But my mom put herself through graduate school working at the Underground Railroad, which was Marsha's bar. And Marsha became sort of a center of a cultural icon of West Virginia. And a lot of big bands laid at her venues. But really, she was a mother figure. She took in wayward teenagers who felt awkward and like they had nowhere to live or nowhere to be. And in these pictures, she disappeared when she was 47 years old. And we always talk about how she seemed so old when I was a kid because she has gray hair. Of course, you know, 
I don't need to say my age, but I also have gray hair. But it's just looking at this photo of her with gray hair, you have to think she's 46 in this picture, probably 45, 46. And she did a lot of great stuff. And she was also, as you said, she was selling weed to support the businesses. And we don't know exactly how much we, you know, was bigger than we imagined. And one day she disappeared. It was a lot bigger than we imagined. And part of what I've had to reckon with, and I think a lot of people in my generation have had to reckon with, is we thought we were so, um, I don't know, we thought we were wild, but it became reckless. It wasn't just, you know, we, I, I still value being a risk taker. I want to be a risk taker. I want you guys to be risk takers because God knows we need people taking risks if we're going to make change. But her risk-taking became really reckless. Uh, One might say that my carrying five pounds of pot onto an airplane was a little reckless as well. And I would agree with that. But she became reckless and it got her killed. Well, we don't know that. I believe it got her killed. We don't know for sure. And you have to listen to the podcast. There are a lot of theories. It's hard. You you just believe all. We have believed every single theory. And many things could have happened. And what is the thing that, I guess, shocked you most when you were working on this? Either about, for you, Jamie, it may have been something that your mom did, or maybe it was just something you learned about Marsha. And what about for you, Karen? I mean, we didn't know that the drugs were, I mean, we knew, I knew because we grew up, I grew up in this world and I, I, like, like smoking pot around kids was never a big deal. It was like people did drugs. I mean, I there were a lot of drugs around, a lot of drinking, a lot of parties. I never thought of them as anything bad. It was fun. We were kids. It was enjoy, you know, it was fun. But some of the stories that we heard and some of the, of some of sort of out of country, you know, international stuff was, we did not know. And, you know, I do think sometimes like, yeah, well, I was, I was a kid. All that stuff was going around, going on around, you know, Maybe around a lot of other kids, you know, and some kids did better than others sort of as they grew up. But it was a it was pretty wild. And I think it was probably in her case, a little more wild than we knew or a lot or a lot more. I mean, there there is so much I'm sure we don't know. What was the story that you told Jamie where you were like as a little kid, you were my you're pantomiming smoking. Can you share that story? I I well. There, there's just it, in our family, it's like funny. Like everyone thinks it's funny. Like we, we were in pre. I was in preschool with a couple other friends that were sort of also back to the land kids, four years old, sitting around. I don't know if it's tea time or what. You know what circle time, and we are all pretending to pass around a joint at the age of four. Our friend Patty, who's in the podcast, she worked there, as did another friend of ours, and also another woman who worked there who was married to one of the state troopers. But in our like communal family, this is a funny story. But I had to really look at some of the stories that we talked about and realize that not everyone was going to find them funny and kind of think about it and con- think about these things in context because four-year-olds sitting around smoking pot is probably not that funny. But they just thought it was cute and funny. And it is kind of funny. <laughs> Well, miming smoking pot, right? You weren't actually. We weren't actually, although in my memory, kids did steal from their parents. Oh, you were not four years old when you were stealing weed from your parents. 
You were a teenager in the East Village when you were stealing weed from your parents. Just saying. But other kids, other kids, I believe, were stealing from their parents at pretty young ages. I, there was a lot of, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of drug abuse for sure. And it wasn't hidden. Most of it wasn't hidden. I did steal from my mom when I was in, I don't know, junior high school, starting in junior high school. But you're just left in like a sock drawer. Oh, the pot? Yeah. <laughs> wasn't very well hidden. <laughs> what were some of the things that you miss about that life, Karen or Jamie? You know, I'm still trying to create the commune. I still long for kind of a collective communal life. I'm not sure I ever successfully, you know, there were moments, again, first of all, I think drugs. And when I say drugs, I don't mean pot, but drugs are not good. They are not good. And I think they really contributed mightily to the inability to create the kind of life we were trying to create. And again, I can't repeat enough, that's lack of a common ideology. So for some of us, we were there because we were rejecting of capitalism. We were rejecting of a patriarchal model of relationship, which we completely fell into anyway when we were there. Everything that was going on there, it's so much worse now, but it's exactly the same. But what became known and why I think one of the reasons Jamie and I were so interested in doing this story and doing something on TV or a movie about it is because it has been so trivialized and it has been so cliched and so stereotyped as this, you know, bell-bottom, peace, love, and understanding, let's all get high and love each other without any of the depth of what was behind it. And it was drugs that really, really fucked it up. And I would say too, just quickly, I mean, one of the beauties of doing working in podcasting in audio is that you don't have the vision, you know, in an interesting way coming from film actually is that is like being able to tell a story without the visuals was really an interesting challenge. And I thought it was a nice way to tell the story of the seventies and eighties because you had to do it through real storytelling and create the visuals through the audio, which is just interesting as a, as a content creator. And I would say one, one of the things that I, I don't know if I miss it, but one of the things I appreciate about that time and about the way that my parents lived was this idea of it's not like over everything now as I do as a parent and in 2022 and, you know, I live my nice life in Brooklyn and everything's about like what school are my kids going to go to and where where are we going to live and what's everything going to look like day to day and so overthought am i going to spend a hundred dollars on these tickets for a concert and it's just i felt i feel like there was a freedom of thought and a freedom to not overthink and i i tried to learn from that when i can and karen you came out while living there right i did do you think you would have come out later on in the real world or? I think I was probably destined to come out. Did this make it easier to do than you think it would have been? No. Well, I don't know. I think, you know, actually, I think what made it easier probably was that both of my parents were dead. Ah, interesting. And I was no longer needing to live up to their ideal of the, you know, lefty, radical the politically radical and culturally conservative 
person. So that liberated me quite a bit. But no, it was actually harder there. We were a really small, closed community with a bunch of macho guys, you know, who had their chainsaws and their pickup trucks and they were hippies. But nonetheless, we were supposed to be home and taking care of the kids. But I mean, there was free love, which probably lent itself a little bit to... Yeah, it was still border crossing. It was boundary crossing. We were supposed to sleep with anybody we wanted to as long as it was of the opposite gender, right? Or unless it was a threesome, that was fine. Those are the good old days. (laughs) (laughs) We were pretty ostracized. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. When Patty and I first got together, oh, yeah, the guys, they lost their minds. They couldn't. So it was not free sex. It was free sex among some people. It was free heterosexual sex. Yeah. That's changed a lot. Speaking more of the politics, I mean, there's a a scene involving the KKK. So can you talk about those cultural political clashes? Yeah, well, we were, it's, you know, again, we, we, Marsha and I and our friends were very politically engaged and the, the, and the, and the state, which was a pure, believe it or not, West Virginia was a blue state when we lived there, even though the culture wars were beginning. Uh, in 1973, there was the Great Book War, right, where they were trying to ban books from the school curriculum. The Great Textbook War. The Great Textbook War. So it was um, it, it was all certainly beginning to happen. And we talk about that in the podcast as well, how the state began to change. But the KKK came to town for a conference outside of Morgantown. And I mean, should I tell the story of Marsha? And another friend of ours just couldn't stand the idea that the KKK was just there. And outside the campground, they had this huge cross erected. And so Marsha and our friend Michelle drove out there in this little Volkswagen with a couple of thermoses of supposedly coffee. And Marsha looked very Jewish, but Michelle was a six foot two blonde, blue eyed woman who, as she says, it always terrified her that she looked like she fit right in in that environment. But they go into this campground where they're all camped out and kids are doing target practice with the targets or there's three targets, a homosexual and a, and a black person with big lips and, and a Jewish person with payas and these little kids with toy guns doing target practice. So Marsha and Michelle start walking around with their thermos and offering the adults coffee because it's a cold, rainy night there. And they explain to the people they give the coffee to that they shouldn't give it to any of the children because there was alcohol in it. It was like mixed with some whiskey or something. But it was spiked. It was spiked with LSD. It was spiked with LSD. So they got this whole campground high on LSD and then snuck out and pulled down the cross and dragged it off with their Volkswagen and the campground broke up two days early. So they were very proud of themselves. But everything was about politics. I mean, that's how I felt growing up. I mean, there were all these, there were the drugs and there was the communal living, but it was all, but for my parents and their friends, it was all, it was all political. I mean, they were in political plays. Marsha held political benefits we lived communally. We went to every march in Washington. My mom's been arrested for civil disobedience. I don't know how many times. I mean, everything was about the politics. We actually have a video of Marsha making a sort of political speech. This is at the 
the Underground Railroad. This is at her bar, and she's throwing a, a party during, I think, Ronald Reagan's second inauguration, where she's nominating somebody else to be president. Sorry about the cold. I hope it's this cold in Washington, D.C. tomorrow. Yeah! Yeah! yeah. Even cold. Oh, it's cold <laughs> All right, last year, all of... What, Robert? <laughs> Put your mouth closer to the microphone. Put my mouth closer to the microphone. And speak clearly. Speak. <laughs> Yorka? Yorka. I'm a bookkeeper. Is this better, Robert? Is that Robert or Chuck? Oh, it's Chuck. Oh, no. It's the voice of doom. Okay. Last year, all of us were subjected to a massive media attack culminating in the predetermined re-election of Ronald Reagan. Many people felt and still feel that he does not represent the majority of Americans. And tonight, we would like to present our campaign to unseat the incumbent and elect a person who has better represented our concerns, has proven herself worthy of the position, and though dead for 72 years, is more alive today than her opponent. And that was Harriet Tubman, Marcia Shiro. You know, we'd say now, I mean, we even talk about the fact that she probably couldn't name the bar the Underground Railroad now in 2022, but in 1982, she could, and she was she was an ally, and she felt like that was an expression of her support, and it was important to her, and Harriet Tubman was somebody she she really respected, and it's, like I said, it was just all about the politics for them. Yeah. And what else do you want people to know about that time, your podcast, any anything that you want to share? Listen to it. It's really good. <laughs> it's eight episodes. We put a lot of love into it. I think, you know, as my mom said, I just really wanted to tell a story about a time and a place that wasn't about the cliche of what you generally think of as hippies. And I hopefully it just people walk away feeling a little more hopeful and a little more um, willing to take risks willing to take risks and also just enjoy a good story. It's ultimately, it's a story and be like a little true crime. There's some true crime in there, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's about hope and it's about risk taking and we can all use some of that right now. Yeah. And Karen, what about you? I think that pretty much sums it up. I have seven grandchildren right now and it's terrifying to think about, you know, my father, who was a lifelong leftist, communist, radical person, I remember seeing him on his deathbed, and he looked at me and he said, I always thought I would see it, the revolution, but I'm not going to, but I think you will. And now I'm 73 years old and thinking, oh my God, I can hear myself saying the same thing to my kids, only... Back in the day, there was a more give and take with the planet, and there's much less of that now. So I'm scared if we don't start, all of us, doing some real risk-taking to change what's happening. So hopefully this will make people feel a little less afraid to take those risks. I mean, even though you left, obviously, the back to the land, it does seem like now that's just more necessary than ever, having, in some ways, like a more low-tech life. Hey, right now I'm living in upstate New York, as you know, and I am gardening and preparing for the commune that's coming here one of these days. I'm back to the land. You're back to the back to the I'm land. Back to, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I'll just dream of it for now. Yeah. 
How old was your dad, Karen, when he died? He was 59. What year was that? Like what decade was that, more or less? I'm just curious. That would have been 1975. Do you think that, I feel like there was a time when people really thought they'd see the revolution and now it's almost like people are afraid they're going to see the end. Are you afraid of that? I'm afraid it'll be imminent. Maybe I won't see it, but if I had kids or if I have kids, they would or grandkids. Yeah, I mean, once you like I have two kids, so you just you can't you think you just can't think like that. It's just like I don't know what the I don't know what that would mean, you know. So it's just you raise them the best you can and you just that's the best you can do. Probably the only thing I think differently about that, though, James, is that I do think as they age, probably beyond my lifetime, but maybe still in yours, there's going to be some pretty significant climate changes. People need to be prepared for what that could potentially mean. But I think for me, it's like I have to be hopeful because because I have to be, mm-hmm. because I, I am. Otherwise, it's too, it's just too dark. It gets too dark. And there's too much darkness already. And I think that's one of the things we enjoyed about making the podcast was that there was a lot of light and dark so that even when we could see the dark, there was this other part that was very light. And I think that's maybe how I have to just see child raising and living right now is that there is a lot of darkness, but you have to, you have to be able to see the light. Not always easy. Not always easy. We have to do both. We have to be hopeful, but also make certain changes and adjustments based on what could happen. But without being a downer or a Debbie Downer about it, just, you know. <laughs> oh, it's all going to be great. Yeah, it's all going to be great, yeah. Well, thank you, ladies, so much for coming on. And everyone, I really recommend their podcast. And we come on, we can talk about more things. Great, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. About the commune, the next commune. Yeah, thanks so much. You got it. Thanks, Katie. Okay, mm-hmm. bye, guys. All right, that was really cool. I really enjoyed talking to them. It's funny, I met Karen in real life and I said to her, because I, I hadn't met her until after I heard the podcast. And I said to her that I experienced that thing that people will say when they meet me. And they're like, oh, wow, it's you. I, I feel like I know you because I've heard you on air or heard you on a podcast. So I had that with Karen. It was, it was very cool. So we have more show for you. We are so excited to bring in our next guest. He is the editor of the Electronic Intifada. And he's also the author of two books, One Country, A Bold Proposal to End the Israeli-Palestinian Impasse, and The Battle for Justice in Palestine, The Case for a Single Democratic State in Palestine. So without any further ado, let's bring on Ali Abunima. Hello. Hi, Katie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. You have a great piece called New York Times Claims That Russia Drove Attacks on Linda Sarsour Is Nonsense. So Let's talk about why you thought this was an important piece to write, because I think it is important, but tell us what your thoughts were. Really, what it was is this was the big Sunday story. I mean, I don't get the paper New York Times. I don't know if anyone does, but, you know, in the old days when we did get the paper New York Times, you know, whatever they put on the front page of the Sunday paper was the big story. And they had this splashed across the front page of the website, and it was really promoted as a big story. And the idea behind it was that I'm sure many of you will recall the Women's March, which took shape in the weeks and months after the election of Donald Trump in those uh, days of late 2016 and early 2017. And 
This was sort of a glimmer of resistance, of grassroots mobilization, but it it was very quickly hijacked by the Democratic Party, if it was ever even separate from the Democratic Party, which it, it probably wasn't. But, you know, a lot of people were drawn to it out of searching for a grassroots way to express their fear, loathing, outrage, whatever, Trump and his agenda. Very quickly, it became mired in internal disputes with the establishment of the Democratic Party, which, of course, wanted to, you know, hijack any independent movement and harness it to the sinking ship of the Democratic Party, basically. But there were problems because, you know, some of the leaders or some of the active people were in some ways going beyond the very centrist or right-wing message of the Democratic Party. And also one of the leaders was Linda Sarsour, a Palestinian-American Democratic Party activist from Brooklyn, who is somewhat controversial among Palestinian Americans even. But, you know, none of us would support the vile Islamophobic attacks she was subjected to. And in the context of the Women's March, before the march, which happened, I think, on January 21st or thereabouts, mid-January 2017, just around the time of the inauguration, liberal Zionist women's groups were very disturbed because Linda Sarsour had supported the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. So there was already infighting. And Sarsour would then be subjected in the days after the Women's March to just a massive, vicious online campaign, you know, just real dehumanization and vilification. And of course, this actually wasn't just for days, but for years. I mean, it continues today, but it it was more intense previously than it is now. This was coming from all directions. It was coming primarily from the Israel lobby. It was coming from the Democratic Party. It was coming from websites linked to Hillary Clinton. It was coming from the Anti-Defamation League, uh, from the Zionist Organization of America. And of course, it was coming from the anti-Muslim right. Now, other people were criticizing Linda Sassour or trolling her or attacking her. But actually, who was really behind this campaign was Vladimir Putin. And so it's just another tedious and tiresome Russiagate thing. Linda Sassour immediately ran with it. I assume that she, I think she's quoted in the story. It's a long story. When I printed it out, it was 12 pages So she must have cooperated with the story. So she immediately promoted it as if it were true. Other groups promoted it, like the Council on American-Islamic Relations promoted it as if it were true. And it was just like, you know, shaking my head. So I spent, you know, two days of my life, which I will never get back, doing a very deep dive into this story and finding that it's a complete nothing burger. I mean, the so-called evidence that the New York Times cites for this Russian hand behind the attacks on Linda Sotsor is just complete garbage. I mean, and it's just, it also relies on completely falsifying the timeline, omitting relevant information, and relying on a so-called analysis on one of the people who was involved in producing the 
now entirely discredited Steele dossier, which, you know, the allegations that Donald Trump was, you know, that there was a P tape and all of that kind of thing. And that's who the New York Times source is in 2022. And this is months after, like, even the mainstream media had to admit that the Steele dossier is complete garbage after its main source was indicted for repeatedly lying to the FBI. And still, the New York Times is trying to pass off this garbage as journalism. So I don't know if you want to go any deeper than that into it, but that's kind of the overview. I thought that it was such a great example of how people like to Trump wash, you know, they Trump wash or Russia wash problems that exist that are very much internal. And they pretend that they're, oh, just because of Trump or, oh, just because of the Russians. And they can't actually grapple with the fact that these are things that are very American and internal. Completely. But it's very slightly more subtle than that, because they're not saying Russia invented the attacks on Linda Sassur, you know, from nothing. They're saying, yeah, sure, you know, this stuff was there. But were it not for Russia, you know, this stuff wouldn't have gained the traction that it did. And that is just like complete BS. And you see it in the story in some of the examples that are in the New York Times story. I mean, just a couple that I wrote about. And, you know, I give credit in my story to some of the folks who dug up a couple of the examples, others I found myself. But one, they claim, for example, that a Russian-run troll account, of course, they can't prove that any of the accounts they claim a Russian-run, a really Russian-run, but even assuming that they were. So they claim that one Russian troll account amplified an attack on Linda Sassur, calling her a pro-ISIS, anti-USA, Jew-hating Muslim. That's the words of this horrible attack on her. And so they say this in the New York Times story. Some of the posts found a large audience. At 7 p.m. on January 21, 2017, an internet research agency account posing as at 10GOP, a fictional right-wing American from the South, tweeted that Ms. Sarsour favored imposing Sharia law in the United States, playing into a popular anti-Muslim conspiracy theory that Trump had helped to popularize on the campaign trail. So they're claiming that this so-called internet research agency, which is supposedly this Kremlin-run troll farm, which we all heard about during Russiagate, they say that this tweet went out at 7 p.m. on January 21, then it caught fire, then it went all over the internet. Well, it turns out that it had already been tweeted countless times, 24 hours before. In one example, one very American right-wing account had tweeted it more than 24 hours earlier and had more than 31,000 retweets and 8,000 likes. So there's simply no basis to say that this was because of, you know, this supposed Russian troll. There are other examples where they claim that, you know, Russian troll accounts had disseminated fake stories about Linda Sarsour. And of course, why are they targeting Linda Sarsour? Because she's associated with the Democratic Party. It's not about Linda Sarsour. It's about hitting the Democrats. So you can say, look at those Democrats. They are in league with this, you know, evil Muslim woman. That's basically what they're saying. They're tapping into the Islamophobia. But one particular story, this was a, a misinterpretation 
of a speech that Salsour had given. And right-wing media had picked it up and claimed that she had called for violent jihad against Donald Trump. The reality is that that story was disseminated by Fox News. Fox News had broadcast it to tens of millions or however many millions of Americans are watching. Donald Trump Jr. had tweeted the story. The New York Times and, and gotten like, I don't know how many likes and retweets. It was on Facebook from Fox News and had hundreds of thousands of views. I mean, the New York Times doesn't even mention that. They try to claim that this one Russian troll account that no one has ever heard of was somehow responsible for this story. So the New York Times story is just full of examples like this that are just completely bogus. But, you know, most New York Times readers are not going to set everything else aside and spend two days of their life digging into these examples and tracking down the original tweets. So the scam is pulled off with the sensational claims and the sensationalist framing. Most people will see the headline, which attributes all this to Russia. And they oh my God, Russia is, you know, Russia is in all our business. Russia is doing everything. And it's just so insidious and so effective in a sense that, you know, in other countries, people know they're being propagandized by state media. In the U.S., people are being propagandized by what is effectively state media, like the New York Times, but they believe that they're actually getting free and independent journalism. Far more effective as a propaganda strategy than any so-called authoritarian regime. Yeah, I was going to ask, so why do you think this is so disturbing? I mean, it's just, you know, the brain rot that has been instilled into people. I mean, you know, Aaron Maté has made the point so many times and, and made it so well, and I even quote him in the story, that, you know, we needed resistance. We needed real resistance after Donald Trump was elected. And all that energy that people had, I mean, I remember getting out of bed and going with friends and driving to O'Hare Airport, whenever it was after he was elected, or after the Muslim ban was announced, just spontaneously driving to O'Hare Airport, because we, we wanted to be part of something, and going there and seeing just thousands of people who had spontaneously come to the airport to protest. People who probably have never been to a protest before, so-called normies. I mean, they're just like, People had left sports bars on the north side of Chicago and got on the L and gone to O'Hare Airport to join the protest. I mean, there was that energy there, and it all quickly got channeled into this complete hoax that is Russiagate. And people's brains were just completely taken over by Russiagate and the Mueller report and this fake resistance, which killed, really, any kind of genuine grassroots opposition to Donald Trump. But that's what the Democratic Party wanted. And, you know, the question is, why are they ginning this up now? You know, I, I mean, not that they've ever stopped, but they, they kind of, I don't know, it's like after the Mueller report and after the Steele dossier was finally discredited, even in the eyes of the New York Times and the Washington Post, why bring it up now? And I think it's got to be about the midterms and it's got to be about preparing the public for another wave of Russiagate in case the Democrats just do spectacularly badly as, as you know, it's very likely they'll do. I can't think of another rationale for it. 
And speaking of brain rot, shifting gears a little bit, but sticking to brain rot, Jonathan Greenblatt and others, Jonathan Greenblatt, of course, at the ADL, were furious that Rashida Tlaib made comments which included describing Israel as an apartheid state. Sadly, it bears repeating that it is an apartheid state. But for anyone who's skeptical about that, what is your your case? If I can say something also about the the campaign against Rashida Tlaib, the Palestinian-American Democratic Congresswoman from Detroit, her comments were pretty tame. She said, you know, Israel practices apartheid. I mean, that's something that is now so uncontroversial that even Human Rights Watch, you know, a a big Western liberal NGO, even Human Rights Watch has admitted it, even Amnesty International has admitted it. And remember, they're doing so decades after Palestinians told everyone. So that's the cycle here. Palestinians will tell you something, they'll be smeared, dehumanized. Called anti-Semites called everything, and then 30 years later, everyone else will admit it, except we don't have 30 years now. The situation is urgent. Enough lives have been destroyed. The word needs to get out that Israel practices apartheid. One of the most severe crimes listed in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, the crime of apartheid has been an international crime. There's a convention on the crime of apartheid Since the early 1970s, at the height of the opposition to apartheid white supremacist rule in South Africa, it got codified into international law, and that got reaffirmed in the Rome Statute in 2000. So it remains one of the most extreme crimes, along with genocide, ethnic cleansing, and other crimes of that level. What Jonathan Greenblatt did, again, he's the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, a Jewish communal organization that masquerades as a civil rights group, but is really just an Israel lobby group. I mean, that's that's all they do. So he went on the attack and Clay, because what Rashida Tlaib said is you can't be progressive. You can't call yourself progressive and support the apartheid that Israel practices against Palestinians. What Greenblatt did is he put out an attack that claimed that Rashida Tlaib had put in place a litmus test for American Jews, that she had targeted American Jews and said that American Jews cannot be progressive uh, if they support Israel, which she never said. Uh, It was a complete fabrication by Greenblatt. But what, what happened then is all these Democrat Democrats in Congress came out with pretty much identical statements, saying the same thing, attacking their own colleague in what was a clearly coordinated Israel lobby campaign. And that just shows you how much the Democratic Party uh, establishment is still really captured by uh, uh, lobbies, including the Israel lobby, Not, of course, not only the Israel lobby, but... but uh, it's, it's one of the major ones, and is so out of step with the base of the party or the people who, who vote for the party that they, instead of defending their Democratic Party colleague in the House from these lies that were being disseminated by the ADL, they repeated them on behalf of the ADL against their Democratic Party colleague. Yeah, actually, trigger warning. It's Jake Tapper reading Greenblatt's comments, but I think it's worth showing the audience. Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from 
what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Here's what Talib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, said at a virtual event yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government, and we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive except for Palestine any longer. The CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, slammed the comments saying that Israel does not have an apartheid government and said that she should not be imposing a, quote, litmus test in a tweet saying, quote, Tlaib tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive space. Some of Tlaib's Jewish colleagues in Congress agreed. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. New York Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler, sometimes called the dean, of the informal House Jewish Caucus tweeted, quote, I fundamentally reject the notion that one cannot support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish and democratic state and be a progressive, unquote. So you can just see right there that that was, by the way, the entirety. There's not like a bit that was left off of what she said. She says nothing about Jews. She says nothing about Zionism. She doesn't say American Jews have to renounce Zionism. She says you can't be a progressive and support Israel's apartheid government, a position I completely endorse and that is obvious. You can't be a progressive and support Jim Crow. You can't be a progressive and support any kind of systematic racism. That's self-evident. But the key point here, what they're trying to do, just as the previous story isn't about Linda Sarsour per se, this story is also not about Rashida Tlaib. It's about using her comments to try to establish, to try to force this idea that any criticism of Israel and its grotesque and violent and murderous practices against Palestinians, that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic and is an attack on Jews. This is, of course, a tactic that has been used, sadly, with great success in the UK within the Labour Party, which is, you know, the the center-left party in the UK, roughly the equivalent of the Democrats. And that systematic Israel lobby campaign over the last few years destroyed the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, the most left-wing and progressive leader that that party has had in decades, and who had a real prospect of becoming prime minister, to the point where any criticism of Israel has been crushed within the Labour Party. And they saw that as a success story, and they're trying to import that into the U.S. Uh, and when I say they, I mean the Israel lobby, pro-Israel groups, and their allies in uh, in the Democratic Party, groups like the ADL, groups like APAC and others. And uh, their problem, I mean, the thing is, they can pull it off with, you know, the, the, the uh, Democratic... Uh, Democrats in Congress, with with most of them, they'll toe the line, and they can pull it off with, uh, you know, Jake Ta- Tapper and other, um, you know, what I call U.S. regime media. But what they can't, they they're having trouble with, is that the base of the Democratic Party is done with Israel, and poll after poll after poll has shown that over years, the base of the Democratic Party is done with Israel, and sees Israel for what it is. And so 
they don't they can't win the argument based on merits the only thing they can do is try to create a taboo where you know progressive people or liberals or left wing people or whatever it is will just feel like oh well you know if i say anything about this i'm going to offend jews and then i'm going to be called an anti-semite and i don't need that headache so they're trying to create fear around any frank discussion of Israel, an apartheid state that gets $4 billion a year in weapons from the United States to murder Palestinians and steal their land. They don't want Americans to talk about that because the more Americans talk about it and find out about it, the more outraged they are. So you have to shut down the discussion. Right. Here, Brad actually put in to the back end a clip of an Israeli minister talking about how the accusation of anti-Semitism is weaponized. Brad, do you want to play that? This is from Democracy Now! Yours is a voice of criticism we don't often hear in the United States. Often when there is dissent expressed in the United States against policies of the Israeli government, People here are called anti-Semitic. Uh, what is your response to that as an Israeli Jew? Well, it's a trick. We always use it. When from Europe somebody is criticizing Israel, then we bring up the Holocaust. When in this country people are criticizing Israel, then they are anti-Semitic. And the organization is strong and has a lot of money. And the, the ties between uh, Israel and the American esta Jewish establishment are very strong, and they are strong in this country. As you know, they have power, which it's okay. They are talented people, and they have power, money, and media, and other things. And their attitude is, Israel, my country, right or wrong? The identification. And they are not ready to hear criticism. And it's very easy to blame people who criticize certain acts of the Israeli government as anti-Semitics and to bring up the Holocaust and the suffering of the Jewish people. And that's, that justify everything we do to the Palestinians. That's the strategy. And that, that clip is from a few years ago. Shulamit Aloni passed away a few years ago. But that is the strategy. And it is now the only strategy, I would say. You know, before there were sort of a, a menu of strategies that Israel and its lobby had, but this is the only one. And I just want to say one thing about the ADL. The scam the ADL pulls, this is important because this is a very big organization, and it's in a lot of people's workplaces. They come in and they do these so-called anti-bias trainings, and they claim to be, you know, against all sorts of racism. And this is about giving buying, sort of get, gaining credibility in order to push their pro-Israel agenda. And a couple of important points about the history of the ADL is in the 1980s and 1990s, this organization spied on Palestinian, American, and anti-apartheid, South Africa anti-apartheid activists for the South African government. So the ADL was spying against anti-apartheid act activists for the white supremacist government of South Africa. Then, in more recent years, the ADL, and I've written about this a lot at the Electronic Intifada, has attacked the Black Lives Matter movement because of the extent to which many activists and organizations within the Black Lives Matter movement 
have expressed solidarity with Palestinians and seen the parallels between police violence in the United States and what Israel does to Palestinians. And the ADL has also been responsible over many, many years for taking U.S. police forces and U.S. police leadership from practically every state and city to Israel for so-called training to showcase Israel, this apartheid state that murders and tortures and jails Palestinians, to showcase Israel as an example for U.S. police forces. And because of this, that letter that dropped the ADL letter, which was signed by dozens, you know, around 100 progressive and anti-racist organizations in the U.S., is asking people not to work with the ADL, not to go along with its fake anti-racism and fake anti-bias trainings and its fake interfaith events, because this is a, a, a really ruthless pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian organization, as can be seen in many examples, including that outright lie told by its CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, about what Rashida Tlaib said. Yeah, there's to be, there actually, there's a documentary, uh, Defamation, which is a pretty good documentary. It's a great which, one. Which, it's yeah, a great it, goes, one. it goes over the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, and the guy who did it is an Israeli Jew. So the Anti-Defamation League is just like totally open to him hanging out. And then he does this documentary that just destroys it. Yeah, and that documentary, I think it's great. People should watch it. It's it's not at all dated, but it's important to note that it, it was uh, made more than 10 years ago. I, I don't remember exactly. 2009. 2009. It's still great. People should watch it. But there's this hilarious scene in it. It's not intentionally funny, but it, it comes off as hilarious, where the filmmaker goes to the ADL offices. You know, they have these huge offices in New York or in Washington. And of course, they have offices all over the country, but he's at presumably their headquarters. And he's asking their chief person who's responsible for documenting anti-Semitic incidents all over the country. He's saying, look, you know, what's an incident that has happened recently or that's ongoing? So I can go because I'm making a film. I want to go and document this and talk to the people, you know, and bring this to life so people can see the anti-Semitism that's plaguing the country, that, that you have this, you know, multi-tens of millions of dollars budget for to fight. And it's just this funny scene where, like, they're looking through the files like, well, you know, there was a kid in a school somewhere who heard, like, a comment. They thought my they couldn't. The point is there wasn't any. There wasn't any. You know, thank goodness. How, what great news that there wasn't any serious anti-Semitism. Not even the ADL could find something for this Israeli filmmaker to do. Now, since then, of course, since the resurgence or the re, I don't know what the word is, the re-strengthening of the far right in this country in the last few years, there have been horrifying violent attacks on Jewish people. There was, of course, the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre. Then six months after that, there was the massacre at the Poe synagogue in California. Real horrific, murderous incidents. And others, the vast majority of them, done by white supremacists spouting, you know, traditional Nazi anti-Jewish rhetoric. What was the ADL doing and other Israel lobby groups? They were trying to blame Palestinians and blame the left. And they were saying the way they did it, they tried to both sides it. 
And of course, many of these people were pro-Trump or expressed pro-Trump sentiment. So they tried to both sides it by saying, yes, of course, there's anti-Semitism on the right, but there's anti-Semitism on the left. But thank goodness there had been no such incidents from the left or from the Palestine solidarity community. It hasn't existed. And yet, instead of actually defending American Jews in their communities from this growing white supremacist threat on the right, they were using those attacks to bolster their campaign against the Palestine solidarity movement. Really disgusting stuff. Yeah. And there is a scene, I remember Abe Foxman, who was the director of the ADL at the time, and Jonathan Greenblatt is his successor. And I remember there's actually a scene where Foxman talks about, you know, he goes around visiting East European countries and, you know, demanding this, that, and the other from them. And he actually talks about how they will meet him and talk to him precisely because they think that as the head of a Jewish organization, he's really powerful and he will be able to get them things from the U.S. government, like that he he has pull in Washington. So Foxman even admits how he uses this kind of anti-Semitic perception to the benefit of his organization. It's really cynical. It's really, yeah, it's, it's a great film and still relevant because this stuff is only getting more pervasive as Israel is more and more exposed as the violent, brutal settler colonial apartheid regime that it is. Anything else you want to mention? Anything you're working on? I just want to say that I hope people will read my article that you mentioned. But if they come to the Electronic Intifada, they're going to see the fantastic work of all my colleagues, including, you know, we have a brilliant podcast, which is on YouTube, which is on SoundCloud. We cover all these issues in much greater depth. We have wonderful writers in Palestine, particularly in Gaza. And so we're doing real amazing journalism. We cover the U.S. political aspect of it as well. So I just want to give a shout out to all my colleagues at the Electronic Intifada and invite people to come and see what we all do, because I'm very proud of the work that my colleagues do. Last question. Brian Frederick asks, can Ali comment on Biden's Israel policy? For one ninety nine, sure I can, although that that's going to... I mean, I shouldn't chat it. I'm really pushing a dangerous stereotype by asking you <laughs> to respond to that, but... Uh, I'm just kidding. No, um... And by the way, Katie, th thank you for doing your show, and I'm glad people support it, because I have to say, these days, I'm really only getting interesting and insightful stuff from independent media. And you, like us at the Electronic Intifada, depend on people's support. And so I'm really, really happy that, that people do come out and support your work. So Biden's Israel policy is the same as Trump's Israel policy, is the same as Barack Obama's Israel policy, is the same as George W. Bush. It's $4 billion a year minimum, no strings attached, military assistance. And the Biden administration, I mean, you just need to look at the U.S. reaction to the murder of Shirin Abu Akleh, the Al Jazeera correspondent. You know, for people who don't know, I'm trying to think of what the equivalent of Shirin Abu Akleh would be for like just sort of average Americans. I mean, she's someone of the stature of, I don't want to compare her in terms of the quality of the journalism because she was a brilliant journalist, but you know, someone of the stature of like, I don't know, Peter Jennings or so, you know, just someone people don't remember the nightly news these days, but someone who is just like an iconic figure and she was murdered in cold blood by an Israeli sniper. 
And the Israelis have admitted that, yeah, we did it. And the Biden administration has said, yeah, Israel did it. But they're covering it up. They're refusing to bring criminal charges against the person who did it, and they know who did it. And it's business as usual. And the message for Palestinians really is, if they can kill someone of the stature and the public profile of Shirin Abu Akleh in cold blood with impunity, literally no Palestinian is safe. Any Palestinian can be murdered on TV because she was murdered live on TV. Any Palestinian can be, it's like what Donald Trump said when he said, you know, I could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone in broad daylight and, you know, everyone would still love me. That's literally Israel. Israel can murder a Palestinian of high profile like Shirin Abu Akleh from a major international network live on TV and no consequences. On the contrary, the rewards continue. That's Joe Biden's policy. Yeah, he's a Zionist. You know, he said in that famous clip from, I guess, judging from, because he had less hair back in the 1980s than he he does now. As I get older, my hair diminishes. Joe Biden gets older, his hair increases. So based on the lack of hair on his head, it was from the mid-80s. When he said, if Israel didn't exist, the United States would have to go out and invent it. Then he always tells this fabricated story, depending on which version he's telling, that his Irish Catholic mother told him, oh, we all have to love Israel. Believe me, there's no Irish Catholic mother in the world that ever told their kid that, especially not like in the 1950s. And then in some versions, it's his father who told him. One of, again, one of his fabricated stories. But... You know, the fact that, you know, I I don't make fun of this because it's painful to watch. I'm sure it's painful to watch for people who are experiencing this or seeing a family member go through this. But his cognitive decline that's very visible, even to the point now where the Democrats have to admit it, means that sometimes he accidentally tells the truth because the filters aren't there. So when he went to Israel in July, he made a statement that, of course, got almost no coverage in the U.S. media because it was true and very devastating. He said that, you know, what the Palestinians have gone through is a lot like what the Irish have gone through at the hands of the British. Yeah. It's like, what? What? You admitted that? And and everyone pretended he didn't say it. But it was the truth, the one honest thing he said. And what it tells you is they all know. They all know. All these leaders know, but it's politics and they're not going to go against it. And Israel is one of the U.S. clients in the region that helps maintain U.S. hegemony and is also the excuse for U.S. hegemony because as long as Israel is there in this racist and untenable form, the U.S. says, oh, well, we we have to be in the region in order to, to defend Israel. So Israel is both a tool of U.S. hegemony and an excuse for U.S. hegemony. And that's basically what it boils down to. But, you know, you corner someone like Biden, they know what's up. Well, thank you, Ali. As usual, amazing analysis and passionate, passionate delivery, as is appropriate, of course, for this subject. Thank you very, very much. Everyone go to Electronic Intifada and love having you on. And we'll definitely have you on again. My pleasure. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. 
If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.